everybody. Welcome back to the Religionless Podcast. This is episode number three. I'm your host, Jeff Turner. I know that I told you that we were going to focus mainly on conversations and interviews, but I did want to share one more live message, talk, sermon, whatever you want to call it, that I gave a few months back. And it correlates to the first message that I shared in episode number one, where I sort of told my own story of deconstruction, whatever you want to call it. So this message was actually given the following week and was given as a literal follow-up to that message. And so I hope you enjoy this today, and I hope it gives you a little bit more insight into my own story and my own journey and my own process. Now, before we get into today's episode, I do want to remind you to go ahead and subscribe if you're listening on iTunes. Also, please be sure to leave us a review, preferably one involving five stars. That really goes a long way in helping people see our work and be able to benefit from it as well. Also, if you wish to financially contribute to the work that we're doing, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash religionless. Also, when you become a monthly patron, there's some um, you know, different tiers, and there's some different, you know, exclusive content that you will gain access to as well. So please go ahead and check that out again. It really helps to keep us doing what we're doing. Without further ado, I want to take you back a few months to a message I gave entitled Depth of the Surface, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening to Religionless. The famed Catholic theologian Karl Rayner said that in the days ahead, one will either be a mystic or nothing at all. In the days to come, one will either be a mystic or they will be nothing at all. What does that mean? Well, let's talk about that a little bit this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, says, In those days, when there was again a great crowd without anything to eat, Jesus called his disciples and he said to them, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples replied, How can one feed these people with bread here in the desert or here in this desert? desolate place. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves. And after giving thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to distribute, and they distributed them to the crowd. And they had also a few small fish. And after blessing them, he ordered that these two should be distributed. They ate and were filled and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. Jesus finds himself in the midst of a hungry crowd and his disciples don't believe that what is given is enough. And they say, how can we possibly feed such a crowd in such a desolate place? <laughs> I know it's a little late in the year for a Christmas story, or maybe it's a little early depending on how your brain perceives things. But one of my favorite Christmas readings, and don't worry, we're going to come back to all of that I just introed with at the end, but one of my favorite Christmas readings is the story, Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus. Are you familiar with this? So how it goes is basically there's this young girl named Virginia, a firm, staunch believer in, the, in jolly old St. Nicholas, and some of her little schoolyard buddies tell her there is no such thing as Santa Claus. Kids, if you're in the room, there is. Don't worry. Okay. Um, <laughs> And they tell her there is no such thing as Santa Claus. And so she's a little, you know, taken aback by this. And she goes home and she asks her father, hey, you know, is there really a Santa Claus? Because here's what the kids are saying. Here's the word on the street. And he says, if you want to know if there's really a Santa Claus, write to the Sun, the newspaper, and ask them. And if you see it in the Sun, it's so. So if they tell you there's a Santa, you can rest assured there is, in fact, a Santa Claus. And so it's basically the editor's response to her question 
concerning the existence of one St. Nicholas. And he just tells her, look, your little friends, they think themselves smart. They fancy themselves these, you know, rational experts on on the world. And um, But let me tell you, they don't know what they're talking about. There is, in fact, a Santa Claus. And one of the most beautiful lines from this piece of writing is this. He says, look, you may tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside. But there is a veil that covers the unseen world, which not the strongest man, nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could ever tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain and view and pick the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Now, I love that thought. It's beautiful. It's, it, it's well-written. I, I love it. I love reading this annually. But if you're philosophically inclined at all, you will recognize in the words of this editor to young Virginia something that atheists call the God of the gaps fallacy. Now, if you know what the God of the gaps fallacy is, it's sort of an epithet for an argument that many theists use when arguing with atheists concerning the nature of God. And it goes something like this. Well, how do you explain that? If there is no God, explain that. And when the atheist comes back with, here's the explanation for that, the theist then says, okay, fair enough. But what about that? And then when the atheist comes back with an answer for that, the theist says, "Mm okay, all right, mm, touche. Okay, but what about that? And then when an answer comes back for that, it's a what about that? And it's a what about that? And it's a what about that? And it's just this endless, but what about that? It's this endless pushing God further and further and further back into these realms of mystery that we don't yet have answers for. It's this constant saying, well, okay, so the sun is not a God that is born every morning and dies every evening and is resurrected like the ancients believed. Okay, we understand now. It's this burning ball of gas and the stars we see in the sky are likely suns themselves with, with planets and galaxies. Okay, I get that. So yeah, that's not, we have an explanation for that. That's kind of been disenchanted. We no longer view that as being, you know, divine necessarily. And okay, so the clouds aren't chariots that angels and spirits and demons ride on. Okay, we get that. And so the lightning is not the anger and wrath of Thor. Okay, we get that as well. But what about this? What about dark matter? Hmm? What about the God particle? Gotcha. You'll never be able to answer that. What about quantum physics? There you go. Checkmate. You'll never be able to answer that one. And the atheist simply comes back and says, not now. But there is enough prior probability that at this point we can say without applying an ounce of faith that it's likely we will understand this at some point in the future. And some will say, well, that's just blind faith in science. That's another kind of religion. And I think that's a completely fallacious argument. It's not faith in science. It is science. It's rationality. It's saying, look, pretty much every other question we've put forth historically, we have eventually found a scientific answer for. And so it's likely now, it's statistically probable that questions we don't presently have answers for, we will have answers for eventually. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the famous astrophysicist, host of the most recent iteration of Cosmos, said that when you put forth God as being just simply the place where science has yet to tread, 
when you put forth God as being just simply a question that science has yet to address and answer, what you reduce God to is a, an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. And if you wish to remain relevant in the future, your God had better become more to you than that, or else he's wearing a pretty large and pronounced expiration date on his person. Do you get what I'm saying so far? That the God so many of us hold on to and believe in, and I'm not trying to insult you by saying so many of us, I'm just trying to include myself in this so as to not seem like I'm pointing fingers at anyone. But the God so many of us hold on to is not a God that we've actually encountered or have any kind of daily experience with. The God most of us hold on to is just simply an answer to a mystery that there's not an answer for yet. And we say, well, there's still some space in the universe for God over there in the realm of quantum mechanics because nobody understands that yet. And so while everything else in the world might now be disenchanted for me, and I no longer see all these little normal things that the ancients used to see as being divine as being divine anymore, there's still something out there that might possibly contain God. This is the God of the gaps fallacy. Wherever there is a gap in our understanding, wherever there is a gap in our knowledge, we fill it with God. And we say, that's where God resides. The editor's response to Virginia is a God of the gaps argument. It's a Santa of the gaps argument, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, your friends might not be able to set up a camera and catch old Saint Nick coming down the chimney, but look, there's a veil that lies over the unseen world that all the collective hands of all who've ever lived can't tear apart, and maybe that's where he is. <laughs> but we're at a point in history where we can actually look into the future, and, and there's enough prior probability at this point to assume that questions we don't presently have answers for or to, we will. And things are, like, increasing with frightening rapidity at this point. I mean, just, like, knowledge is increasing daily, and there's mysteries being solved daily. Just, like, it, it's insane. I mean, could you literally, like, I carry something the size, like, slightly larger than an average deck of cards and thinner than the poorest man's wallet, you know, in my pocket. And with it, I can access all of the information that human beings have ever, like, amassed and that there's a record of, I can access it the drop of a hat. At a second's notice, I can access it. Hey, Siri, you know, uh, Alexa, uh, Google, you know, anything. My kids don't even understand a world where you can't just push a button and speak into the air and get an answer. My kids don't even understand a world where, like, if you didn't know something, you had to go to the library and maybe check out a book, you know, or go to a bookstore and buy a book. They, they don't, that world is so foreign to them, Right? And this technology is not even really that, like, like new. I mean, it's, but it's, it's, it's a completely different world now. Growing up, this is like the stuff of, like, this is the stuff of movies. This is the stuff of sci-fi. And even then, I couldn't have ever imagined it would be this small. It would be some kind of, like, device I wore on my head or something. It was, like, huge. And, but it wouldn't have just been, you know, hey, Siri, you know, no. Yeah, of course. <laughs> But it's ridiculous, but the whole world has changed in a generation, less than a generation. Things we thought absolutely impossible less than a generation ago are now not only possible, it runs the world. So who are we to think that things we stare down right now and are like, there's no answer for this. And so long as we don't have an answer for this, we can plug God into that hole. Who's to say that by the end of your life, by the end of this decade, that stuff won't be like old hat? We have no idea. 
And that's the danger of building your faith on the flimsy foundation of this God of the gaps idea. That God is simply an answer to unanswerable questions or presently unanswered questions. And God is just a solution to seemingly unsolvable or presently unsolved problems. When that is the God you worship, you place an expiration date on your God's existence. It reminds me of, are you guys with me so far? This reminds me of the story of one Charles Templeton. He was a contemporary of Billy Graham. Um, according to some writers, he was, well, well, they were, this isn't just like rumor, they were preaching pals, they were preaching partners, and apparently Templeton was the more promising of the two. He was the one that it was thought would go on to do, you know, the most stuff. You know, he was actually considered to be the one who would go on to be the Billy Graham, the more charismatic speaker, the better presenter, the more eloquent preacher. But somewhere along the way, Templeton started asking questions. He started looking into things that maybe, you know, Christians aren't too comfortable with you looking into. He started to study, you know, higher biblical criticism and things like this, things and ideas that any pastor who's gone to seminary knows and has been exposed to, but oftentimes feel like, feels like they have to hide from the congregation because they don't think you can handle this truth. <laughs> So he started to study, and he didn't start to study because behind the scenes he was some debaucherous, diabolical devil trying to live some double life. How's that for alliteration, right? He was doing this because the deepest Christian impulse is to follow truth no matter what it costs, and then once you find it, follow it wherever it leads. Nietzsche, in the intro to I think it's beyond good and evil, it could be the genealogy of morals, says that Christianity often dies at the hands of its own morality. Because the deepest Christian impulse is to follow truth wherever it leads. And then once you find it, to follow it wherever it takes you, regardless of the cost. And so oftentimes the form of Christianity we've been handed is built on a flimsy foundation. But because the deepest Christian impulse is to find and follow truth regardless of the cost, once we start doing that, we find that our Christianity is built on a flimsy foundation and it fails us. And we're not rejecting Jesus when we do that. We're actually following Jesus, who is the truth. Because when we follow truth, well, it leads to the dissolution of falsehoods. And if our faith is built on a falsehood, then following Jesus will result in the dissolution of our faith. So we can find truth and reality. And so this is what Templeton was doing, just following truth. But the form of faith he was working with was so flimsy and built on so thin a foundation that it couldn't stand up to scrutiny, and it failed him. And Templeton ended up renouncing his faith, and he went on to be this once promising preacher, this, this possible Billy Graham in the making, becomes a renowned atheist, lecturer, and writer, and philosopher, and spends his life speaking against the faith that he once cherished. And so at the end of his life, I, I believe it was like when he was in the beginning stages of, of dementia, um, Lee Strobel in the book, A Case for Faith, which is not a book I'm really all that fond of or an author I'm all that fond of, but God bless him and his efforts. So anyways, was interviewing Templeton about his experiences. And, you know, Templeton's being the snarky atheist he was and just kind of, you know, blasting these arguments for Christianity, you know, every time they came his way. And then Strobel asks him about Jesus. Well, what do you think about Jesus specifically? Not the ontological argument, not this, that, or the other. What do you think about Jesus? And when he asked him that question, he said his features, his face softened, and he says something akin to, I have it on my, in my notes, but I'm not going to read it to you, but it's something akin to, uh, he was the greatest man who ever lived. Everything I am, I owe 
to Jesus. I, I can't get him out of my head. I don't believe the way I once did, but uh, I can't get over this man. <laughs> and he says, I don't really even know how to explain this, but I miss him. And he puts his head in his hands and he starts to sob. And then he comes to and wipes the tears away and says, enough with that, On let's move on to other things. But that story always strikes me as a tragedy of tragedies because here's this man who had a genuine encounter with the living Jesus in the depths of his soul. But the faith he inherited and was handed was built on this flimsy foundation where God is only a, um, God is only a tenable you know, uh, proposition so long as certain gaps remain unfilled by other answers. But once they started to be filled by other answers, once, for example, his understanding of the Bible fell apart because he had a very particular understanding and approach to Scripture, and it only could be this way. And if it was any other way, well, then everything was just false. He had a very specific approach to creation and the age of the earth and all this kind of stuff. And, it, and if it ended up being anything other than what he had been taught all of his life, the whole thing fell apart and didn't work. That was the flimsy foundation his faith was built upon. Listen, the foundation of Christianity, by the way, is not creation science or the age of the earth. Mm, can I get a come on? Because it ain't. The foundation of Christianity is Jesus. And if somebody tells you you've got to believe the earth is only this many years old in order to really be part of the club, sorry, dude. That ain't the gospel. Because, yeah, what do you do with someone who doesn't even have a conception of that? What do you do with some villager somewhere whose mind doesn't even think in those terms? What you got? In addition to believing Jesus is the Son of God, you also have to confess the earth is 6,000 years old. Give me the largest break available, supersized with all the fixins, you know? But that's it. We've added so many requirements onto the gospel, right? We've added so many other things onto it that if you don't also believe these things, well, you don't really believe, and your faith is as good as false. And that was sort of the foundation Templeton's faith was built upon. And regardless of the fact that he'd genuinely encountered Christ, that deep Christian instinct to search for truth in him led him to a point where he could no longer accept certain of these doctrines as truth. And because he had been taught that if these were false, the whole thing was false, he had to pitch the whole thing as an honest person of integrity. But deep inside, he harbored this love for Jesus because he'd encountered Jesus. But because that encounter and that experience was not the main thing, his faith fell apart. After being scrutinized, I again quote Carl Rayner in the days to come, one will either be a mystic, one with a genuine experience of God who holds the experience of God as being of primary importance, or you will be nothing at all. <clears throat> See, the person who finds their faith falling apart, and by the way, this is kind of a part two to last week's message, where I kind of gave my own testimony about how as a pastor, I became an atheist. <laughs> so that I could encounter God. Because one of the first calls of Christianity is to turn from our idols, so we may encounter the God who is. But until we turn from our idols, and that is we really have the idols that live within us brought down, we will view even the God who is through the lens of the idols that live within us. 
and we'll still be worshiping an idol even if we call it by the name Jesus or Yahweh. And so the person who finds their faith falling apart on them, the way that Templeton found his faith falling apart, these aren't demonic, diabolical, debaucherous devils trying to get away, you know, trying to commit deicide so they can live whatever kind of life they want. These are often people who are following a deeply Christian instinct to find truth. But when they find truth, the form of Christianity that they were handed can't stand up to truth because it's based on reason and rationality and things like this as opposed to a deep encounter with the living Christ, which is not rational, by the way, which is not reasonable. Luther called reason a whore, <laughs> and he was right. Martin Luther, Christ, founder of Lutheranism, Christian guy. It's okay that I said it. I'm quoting, <laughs> quoting one of your heroes, whether you know it or not. You know, that reason, you know, this thing we think, you know, this is what we should base everything on. He's like, don't trust that thing. You can't trust that. But that's what we build everything on, and we wonder why it falls apart on us. We wonder why people are leaving the church in droves because we've emphasized this fallacy over the reality of an encounter with a God who lives. <clears throat> okay, we're going somewhere. Are you still with me? Yeah. Okay. Ooh, I'm ahead of myself in my notes. <laughs> I'll tell you a couple stories about myself. When I was a teenager, because you see, let me just tell you this. When I was a teenager, I lived a very different kind of teenage life. I wasn't, I wasn't the partying type. I wasn't, uh, yeah, I wasn't that type at all. I got <clears throat> radically lit up for Jesus at about 15 years old. I was the on fire guy. I was the guy everyone wanted their kids around because they wanted them to be like me. Radical. I mean, when I was 15 years old, I'd be up praying four or five hours into the night. I wasn't doing my homework, mind you, <laughs> but I was praying. <laughs> it's amazing how sometimes those things don't connect. <laughs> and my weekends were often spent in a 15-passenger van with some of my best buds, who were these middle-aged ladies, <laughs> who... who would drive me around to these various revival hotspots and places where different evangelists were coming. Because, you know, in the 90s, we were in the throes of the renewal revival movement, right? And so you had this, like, outbreak, like, in Toronto and then Pensacola, and everyone was traveling there and getting coughed on by the evangelist and coming home as a carrier of this revival bug and then coughing on their congregations and everyone was catching it. And it was all about going and catching the fire, you know. It was all, that's what it was all about. So we were going everywhere that anyone was who had caught this particular strain of the Holy Ghost, hoping to catch it ourselves. And so these ladies were... Um, they were revival, you know, aficionados, and so they knew the places, and so I was with them. And we'd be driving down the road in their 15-passenger van, and they'd be blowing shofars in the van, you know, waving flags. Do you, maybe you didn't grow up in this culture, but dude. <laughs> For a while, I resented it, and then I was like, 
where else on this planet could you have experienced such colorful characters? Now I think it's a blessing, even though it messed me up for a while. You know, waving flags in the car, you know, almost gouging out eyes and stuff. And, you know, they'd be drunk in the spirit and screaming while driving a 15-passenger van. Those things tip easily, you know? And they'd be like, wow, with this, you know, cheesy Hosanna revival music up full volume. And I'm just like, oh, God, oh, God. And they're completely blitzed out of their minds, just swerving all over the place. It's amazing I made it, you know? So... But that's how I spent my youth. And I remember we went to this one particular revival meeting in Mount Clemens. And I was, this night I went, drove home with a friend of mine who also came to the meeting, you know, because I got kind of tired of the ladies, you know, putting my lives into their hands. So I drove, I went home with a friend of mine and he had been going to these meetings just to meet this girl who was on the worship team that he was into. And so, you know, he really thought he was making some progress with her. And while I was, everyone else was laying on the floor shaking with, you know, little blankets over their midriffs. He was, you know, hitting on this girl. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I was still like, whoo, you know, and he was like, getting out of here, man. This is lame. This is stupid. I'm like, what? And he was mad because this girl wasn't returning his affection. So we went out to eat. And um, as I'm getting, I, I'm sitting in the car and he's complaining about this girl. And oh, man, she blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, you know, just shut up. I'm just in the glory right now. I'm just in the glory. And um, as we're driving, my, you know, I, I'm starting to just feel my hands tingling, like just whoo, tingling, you know? And so we get to the restaurant. I try to get out of the door. I fall in the parking lot. He, like, picks me up, carries me in the restaurant, sets me down in the booth. And I'm just sitting there. I'm, like, 15 or 16 at the time. And, like, I mean, my hands feel like they're on fire. And I'm like, if I lay these on someone right now, who wants this anointing, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm thinking. And then all of a sudden, they, my fingers start to draw like together like this, like into these little crab claws, you know, both hands. And I'm like, what is this? You know, it's like, you know, the Mr. Crab's anointing or something. I don't know. You know, I don't know what's going on. It's just like, what is happening? You know, and anyways, it was just one of the most profound experiences that I'd ever had. It felt so real. It was so tangible. I couldn't deny that I felt and experienced something and it wasn't even in the context of a church service where it could have just been the dopamine hits and all this kind of stuff. I was in a car listening to a dude complain about a girl who wasn't into him the way that he was into her. We were in a nasty restaurant in Mount Clemens, and it was like, this shouldn't be happening here, you know? I can imagine, this could happen in church, but this is not fake. This is real. Years later, when I was a youth pastor, I was sitting around with some other youth pastors, and, a youth, and they were all swapping our youth pastor horror stories, you know? The times we did something stupid and almost endangered a bunch of kids' lives, or the time when... We make people youth pastors way too early. Good Lord. Um, but this guy was telling a story about how he house sat for um, some, some parents in the church while they went out of town, and they left him there to house sit and to kind of keep an eye on their, like, 16-year-old. And um, he said that, like, the last day before they came home, this kid just started, like, you know, my hands feel like they're on fire. And he started like tripping out and like almost passing out. And he started claiming he was the antichrist or something like that. And he was just like, what's going on here? And the guy's like, the kid's freaking out. So he calls the ambulance, an ambulance to come and see what's going on. And he said, by the time they got there, you know, his hands are drawn together like in these little claws. And he's like, feels like he's on fire. And he's like, which, and then I found out the guy hadn't eaten for several days. 
and he was like dehydrated and you know and like the hands drawing together like that that's something that can happen if you're dehydrated and, and, and malnourished and you know that's and it ended up that was what was going on just a casual story that this guy was telling but he didn't realize how that upset my world because my most profound experience of God was one in which my hands drew together like little crab claws and I felt like they were on fire and I was passing out. And then I thought about it and I was like, oh my goodness. I had fasted for three days prior to the meeting because I thought going on a hunger strike could make God bless you, you know? And I had been like exerting all of this energy in the meeting. I was dehydrated and I was malnourished. I didn't... Oh. And it was like at that moment... The most profound experience with God that I had had up until that point was just like taken away from me. And this thing that I'd built so much of my life on was taken from me. Shook me up. I was a pastor. What are you going to do with that? I remember another time I was preaching in Ohio. My family was with me and I was uh, staying in a hotel room. It was late afternoon. We'd been kind of out all day just seeing the sights and driving around, and I think where we were, the sights, like, was a Walmart because we were in Nowheresville, Ohio, but we made a day of it, and um, <clears throat> so, but we came back, and they're all sleeping, and I'm, I'm up studying, and I ended up, you know, just watching this video, and in this video, it was this mentalist um, showing how charismatic manifestations um, and things like that can be conjured up just simply by using, you know, um, hypnotic techniques and even sometimes completely accidental. Sometimes the person doesn't even really have to know that they're doing it. It's just they've seen it done, they repeat it, and it has the same effect. And so he literally brings and sits down this woman who's an atheist. This person himself is an atheist. And he just simply by saying some words, tapping his hands on a desk a certain way, and creating a certain environment around this woman induces a more powerful conversion experience in this woman than I'd ever seen anyone experience in my meetings when I'm preaching the gospel and literally praying to the Father in Jesus' name. And I got to get up and preach in just a few hours. And I'm like, oh, so that's what's happening at the altars. (laughs) Oh, my. That was one of the most difficult messages I ever had to give. Because I used to really be, you know, I'd give the message and then bring everyone up. And I wanted you to experience what I was preaching about. But at that point, I was like, it's, it's manipulative of me to do this. I've seen behind the veil. I've seen behind the curtain. I, I, this is just playing on people's emotions. What in the world? And I couldn't, I, I couldn't do it. I gave my message. And then I just quietly said, thank you for coming and put the mic down and sat down. I, I didn't, didn't know what to do with that. And I had been in this point for a while where my faith had been failing me, like I talked to you about last week, where things that were supposed to work just stopped working, where things that were not supposed to happen to people like me started happening to people like me, and things just stopped working. And so I went through this phase of deconstruction where I really started digging into my beliefs and really started tearing stuff up, tearing stuff open, tearing stuff apart, and seeing what does make that rattling sound. Tear open the baby's rattle, see what makes the noise. Oh, it's just a bunch of beads inside of a plastic sphere nothing magic there. Well, let's go one step further then. What about this veil out here that is supposed to be where God lives? Tear that one open. Oh. Hmm. I don't like this, but I got to know. 
So I keep going and I keep going and I keep going and I keep digging and I keep digging and I keep digging and I start digging into my theology. I start digging into the, my, my, the doctrine and the stuff that I preach to people every week, things that were, it was the foundation of my life. My life had been built on this stuff since day one, since breath one, I was born, baptized into an atmosphere where this was the norm. <clears throat> and all of it just fell apart under scrutiny. I'm like, are you kidding me? This doctrine is only 200 years old. It's taught nowhere in scripture. What in the world? What are you kidding me? This doctrine, this, this originated with Anselm of Canterbury a thousand years ago. This wasn't the teaching of the early church fathers and the patristics and certainly not Paul. And what? Oh my goodness. And things just fell apart. And even the experiences and things like that that I had had started falling apart. The things that, I was, that really kept me anchored. You know, I remember hearing a man give a talk on a book that he had written called The Illusion of God's Presence. And he talked about the sense that we get of God's presence just really being the result of this internal map of a mother figure that humans have going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years, much the same way a sea turtle has this internal map in its mind that on it, when it's born, it just it, it goes towards the brightest light in the sky and ends up in the ocean. And so he says humans have something similar like that. There's this map of the mother, so you can brush an infant on the face and it'll turn like this to nurse, even when it has no experience of nursing yet. It's this map of the mother that's in its mind. It's there, it's, and it's passed on for generations. He's like, when we get to a certain age, the brain, that part of the brain kind of shuts down and we don't have it anymore, you know, we don't need it anymore. But if you go to someone in a nursing home where that wall's kind of come down again, you can brush them on the face there again and their head will turn. It's just an instinct. Because that map is there, it's in the head. And he talks about that, that there being this map that we have in our brains of this comforting figure in times of trouble, in times when we feel alone, that we feel this presence. And he argued very eloquently and very persuasively that so much of what we think of as being an experience of the presence of God is just simply this. And I just started to look into all this stuff because I had to know. I didn't want to lie to people, and I didn't want to lie to myself and I also figured, you know, if God is God, he can stand up to whatever winds I expose him to. So let's just let the winds blow and see what remains. Let everything that can be shaken be shaken and let's see what, 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 what's still there. And so I did it. And I found not much left. There was a lot being shaken up and done away with. And the one thing that kind of kept me going was the actual process of deconstructing my beliefs. That was the one exciting thing. That was the exciting thing that remained. I, my prayer life wasn't what it used to be. My, like, you know, mystical experience with God wasn't what it used to be because I was doubtful and kind of skeptical about things. But the actual deconstruction of my beliefs kind of filled that void. So as long as I had something I could tear apart and learn something new about and say, oh, that doesn't mean what I thought it meant, and I had a new thing I could teach on and kind of help other people see, I still felt like I was kind of doing something and moving, you know? And I'll never forget this one night. Everyone else was in bed, and I was pacing back and forth in my living room as I want to do and was just kind of, you know, thinking through stuff and thinking through ideas and, like, trying to pray. And, you know, and it just all of a sudden, I just, it was like, I, there's nothing left for me to take apart here. There's nothing left to deconstruct. I don't mean like in general in the world, we'll never run out of stuff there, but like as far as my faith tradition was concerned, I was like, I've run out of things to take apart. I've gone as far into this as I can go. And what am I left with? And it was just this sense of there's nothing left. There's nothing left. 
And it was like my whole world became demystified and disenchanted. All of the places where God once lived, all of the gaps where I once hid my God in, they were all filled with other things at this point. And I, there was nothing, I just had, there was just nothing left. What do I do here? It was like I had gone beyond the last frontier, the last fence that I had said, okay, well, yeah, sure, we, maybe God's not here behind all these fences, but there's this last fence, and behind there, that's surely where God is. Behind that last veil, surely that's where God is. And it was like I'd gone behind that one now. And I was like, no, it's not here either. I was like Jim Carrey at the end of the Truman Show, sailing into blue skies and hitting a wall instead. And what you thought was this open expanse in front of you representing freedom, it was like, whoa. (laughs) And that's what it felt like. And I just felt so alone and so empty in that moment. Like everything was gone. Like everything was stripped away. Like there was no magic left. Like there was nothing. It was just gone. But, you know, I found over the years that when God clears the canvas like that when God hits control A and backspace in your little Word document. There's a purpose to it. And I think I talked to you about this several messages back, but there, is, there, there are forms of art that come to us from the East where it's mostly a blank canvas with a few gentle brush strokes and flourishes, deliberate but few. And at first glance, you might not get it, but when you let the mostly white blank backdrop do its job, it puts a pressure on the few intentional brush strokes that are there, and it pushes the potential of those out straight into your face, and you see something that might get lost on the canvas of a piece of Western art where it's just crammed with images and ecosystems and this and that and the other. But when the canvas is mostly cleared and there's a few deliberate marks left, the potential of what's there comes forth. It's like a haiku, right? One of the most brilliant forms of poetry, able to convey more emotion in three lines of five, seven, and five syllables than some people can do in an entire novel. Why? Because the page is mostly blank, and the words that are there are very deliberate and very intentional and therefore are full of potency and potential. And when the mostly blank page puts pressure on those few words, Their meaning comes forth, and you see it. And we live in a world where the page is so crowded, where the canvas is so crowded with with God concepts and, and, and strategies and ways of getting it done and ways of experiencing God and ways of encountering God that God has to take us down paths sometimes, where everything is deleted, where the canvas is completely cleared, and we're left seemingly alone. Like Saul of Tarsus, left blind and alone for three days, right? Until he encounters a man named Grace on a street called Straight, and all of his crookedness is healed, and the potential of who he is comes forth. But there first had to be that deletion. There first had to be that darkening where I can't, I was so certain. I mean, Saul of Tarsus is killing people in the name of his theology. Do you think that was a man who was certain? He knew that he knew that he knew that he knew. And then he encounters the God who is, who says, look, you've got this backwards. You're not persecuting for me. You're persecuting me. That turns his whole world upside down. 
blinded. Oh, the truth is his eyes were opened because he'd always been blind. He just thought that he saw. But when his eyes were open, he saw what he had actually saw all, saw all along, which was nothing. And he's left alone in that nothingness, all the delusions, all the illusions stripped away. And for three days, he sits in darkness. For three years, he sits in Arabia, he tells the Galatians. And the reality of Christ in him is drawn to the surface. He starts to, in that place of blankness, there's a pressure put on what remains. (laughs) And the glory of what remains begins to come forth. And see, this is the issue. You tear apart the baby's rattle to see what makes the noise inside, and you're like, oh, mystery solved. We conquered, you know, this now. We've conquered that now. We've conquered this now. All these mysteries solved, and it all started with this simple one. And all of it solved, and now we feel like nothing is mystical or supernatural or enchanted anymore. It's all just empty. But what happens when you're left in that empty space is you go back to the simplest thing, the deconstructed rattle, and you realize that, yeah, it's just beads inside of a plastic sphere making noise when you shake it, but somehow the laughter it elicits from the child, whoa. (laughs) Somehow the joy on the parent's face when laughter is elicited from the child, oh. And you start to realize the divine was always in the simplest thing from the very beginning. And all these things we thought we were jumping over to try to get to where God really was, was God we were jumping over. Because that's where it always was. You see, when we seek enlightenment, whether it's spiritual or secular, the first thing we do is disenchant the world. There's an old Zen proverb, before I sought enlightenment, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. And then once I began to seek enlightenment, mountains became more than mountains and rivers became more than rivers. In other words, they're just representations of something deeper or there's something beyond them I have to get to. He says, but once I attained enlightenment, mountains became mountains again and rivers became rivers again. Because when you think you're on that path of enlightenment, you're really learning and you're ahead of everyone else and everyone else is just these ignorant, stupid savages. You know, the things that once enchanted you are now, you can walk right over them to try to get to something else. But when you're really, really getting to it, though, is going back to the very thing you left and realizing it was the thing you were searching for. See, the mystic is one who's encountered God in such a way that God has not ruined the world for him. But God... See, Jesus is not limitation. Jesus is liberation. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Oftentimes when I hear that preached, I hear it preached as though it's putting limitations on God and how we can encounter God, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Typically, that gets misinterpreted by people as meaning Jesus is saying no one gets to heaven but through me. I'm not saying that's not the case, but that's absolutely not what's being insinuated in John 14. But he does say, look, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one encounters the Father apart from me. What does that mean? Well, Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphs that surround the throne of God say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. What's the next thing they say? The whole earth is filled with his glory. So is there ever a glory problem? Is there ever a lack of presence? Is there ever a place you are where God is not? No. No. Where can I go that you're not, the psalmist says, and the answer comes back, nowhere. Nowhere. So there's never a glory problem. There's never a lack of presence. 
<clears throat> but the prophet Habakkuk says that there will come a day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So there's never a glory problem, but there is a, not, there is a lack of the knowledge of the glory problem. What is the knowledge of the glory that unlocks to us the truth that there's never a lack of glory? 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. What is the face of Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? Come on now. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God in flesh. Come on now. Jesus is the incarnate one. Jesus is God and humanity dwelling together in oneness and at peace. One not undoing the other. One not in competition with the other, but a perfect harmonizing of humanity and divinity. Paul calls him post-resurrection, post-ascension, the man Christ Jesus. God and Jesus has become human and yet remain fully divine. Not a 50-50 split, but a hundred, a hundred. So what do we see when we look in the face of Jesus Christ? We see that the stuff we think we've got to jump over to get to God is where God can be found. The stuff we think we need to overcome so we can encounter God is actually the place where God is encountered. And so there's never been a glory problem. There's been a knowledge of the glory problem. And so God breaks into our reality and ruptures it and says, the glory of God fills the earth like the waters cover the sea, but you have not seen it and you have not perceived it because you think you've got to get over this to get to me. But here's what I'm showing you. Matter and spirit, humanity and divinity are one in Jesus. And when you see this, it's like looking at a legend, a key on a map, and all of a sudden you understand all the markings on the map. Without the key, without the legend, it's just it may as well be who knows what. You don't understand what's going on. But once you see the key, once you look at the legend, oh, all these colors make sense and these markings make sense. And I understand it now. And once you behold and encounter God in the face of Jesus Christ, this humanity you think you have to scrape off and shed to get to him all of a sudden becomes his very habitation. And the very fences and the, and the places we're leaving behind saying to ourselves, okay, well, God's not there, but maybe he's here. And okay, God's not here now, but maybe he's there. All those places you jumped over to try to get to God become to you aflame with God. Everything down to the very deconstructed rattle that you think the simplest mystery to solve in the cosmos becomes a place where God can be encountered and experienced. And it's transrational. It goes beyond reason. It's something altogether different. It's a new wine skin that can only be had on the other side of losing the bridegroom that can contain a wine that the old wine skin cannot. It's when you realize just how deep the surface is. It's when you realize how deep the surface is. Let me read to you Dietrich Bonhoeffer from Letters and Papers from Prison. He says, Religious people speak of God when human knowledge, perhaps simply because they are too lazy to think, has come to an end, or when human resources fail. In fact, it is always the deus ex machina, meaning the God who breaks in to save the day when there's no answer God shows up to answer, okay? 
that they bring onto the scene, either for the apparent solution of insoluble problems or as strength in human failure. Always, that is to say, exploiting human weakness or human boundaries of necessity that can go on only till people can, by their own strength, push these boundaries somewhat further out so that God becomes superfluous as a deus ex machina. I have come to be doubtful of talking about any human boundaries, as even death, which people now hardly fear, and is even sin, which they now hardly understand, still a genuine boundary today. It always seems to me that we are trying anxiously in this way to reserve some space for God. I should like to speak of God not on the boundaries, but at the center, not in weakness, but in strength, and therefore not in death, guilt, but in man's life and goodness. God, listen to this, God is the beyond in the midst of our life. The church stands not at the boundaries where human powers give out, but in the middle of the village. God is the beyond in our midst. God is the depth that lies on the surface. And this is revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. We realized just how beyond everything we're in the midst of is. And just how deep what we think surface level is. The Jesuit priest and poet Gerard Manley Hopkins says, Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and faces not his own. <laughs> All the things we think are devoid of God are actually the very habitation of God. I, I, I'll never forget, you know, after that experience of walking around the living room, having my God experiences fail me, my theology fail me, and then just feeling like I'm staring into a blank void and everything is just... Not too long after that, I remember driving around at Christmas time. My wife and my kids, this was, I don't know, maybe six, seven years ago now, maybe less, maybe more, I don't remember. I'm getting old. <laughs> and um, my, my wife and my three kids were all in a play in Marine City, so they had been gone at practices pretty much every night of the week for the entire month of November and then four nights a week for the month of December. And so what normally were like Christmas traditions of driving out at night, getting hot cocoa and stuff like that, I was like alone most of the time and I really did not like it. And um, But I was glad they were having fun, but I just didn't like being alone all the time. And so, you know, I would go out and get myself a coffee and look at lights by myself and turn on Michael Buble to make myself feel okay, you know, and like, you know, looking at Christmas lights. And it was at this time of just feeling profoundly alone, you know, and all those systems and ideas failing me and not even really feeling the nearness of God so much. And I remember driving up to this house and looking at this, their Christmas lights. Simple, just looking at Christmas lights. And it was like the emptiness of that moment, the blank canvas, the blank page, put pressure on the little that was there, on the few words on the page, the few brush strokes on the canvas. And it was like, I don't even know how it happened. It was like my eyes zoomed in like 20 times, like, and I saw the string of Christmas lights, and it was like I just saw it peeled back and saw the wiring inside. It was weird. I'm not saying I'm a normal dude, but, and I just was like, gah, in the car, you know, idling, looking at Christmas lights, other people behind me. I don't know what they thought. I don't care. But uh, just, boom, and I just, it's a string of Christmas lights. I mean, we're not talking about, post-resurrection Jesus popping out of a tomb. I'm talking Christmas lights, $1.99 on clearance, you know? Just, <laughs> and I saw it, and I was like, ah! And it was like, it just hit like, ah, ah, ah. I, I didn't know what to do with it. And I'm crying, and I'm bawling, and I'm totally undone in my car. I'm like, I gotta get out of here, you know? And I, and I go home, and I just weep, and I have like one of the deepest, sweetest encounters with God that I've had. And it didn't come the way they used to 
come. It came from having everything else stripped from me and having the simplicity of what lay on the surface open itself up to me. And the simplest thing became the most profound thing. The most shallow thing became the deepest thing. And I don't know how to explain it, but there's never a lack of glory. It's a lack of knowledge. But when we look in the face of Jesus and see humanity and divinity, spirit and matter are one, and they're not in competition with one another, it unlocks what was always in front of us. And this brings us back to the passage I opened with, Mark chapter 8, where the disciples of Jesus look at the very small amount that was given, and they say, how can we feed so many people in such a desolate place? Number one, who told them it was a desolate place? That was their opinion. But because they perceived the place as desolate and void of resources and what was needed, they said, we're going to have to go somewhere else or send them away. And Jesus says, you don't have to send them away. Give them something to eat because there's more compressed in what was given than you understand. So simply begin to distribute. And as what was given was distributed, it presented itself as being far more than what was needed. I think seven baskets left over in this account of broken pieces, even after everyone's eaten. See, our problem is that there's more in what lays in front of us than we realize. But we believe the more is out there. And so we jump over what was given in pursuit of what we think will be given when we reach the place where it's given. And all the while, we're leaping over the miraculous. We're leaping over the very God we're looking for. And I think that's why theophanies can only be recognized in reverse. Divine appearances really are rarely recognized when they're happening. You realize them in retrospect. Once you get to the end of yourself and you realize there was nothing here, or what I thought where I was going to find this grand unveiling of God, it's not here. Then all of a sudden you just look back and you're like, oh my, surely the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. I had been encountering God all along. See, the deepest encounter of God is the one you don't realize you're having. Amen. And then when you hit a wall and realize the encounter is not to be had out there, it's to be had right here. Everything that you jumped over, you see just what it was. And so in the days to come, a man will either be a mystic or nothing at all. Because an experiential relationship with God, the mystical relationship with God can perceive the divine in anything, anywhere, at any time because it's beheld the key and the legend in the face of the incarnate one. But all this other stuff, it has an expiration date on it. It's fading fast. Your kids don't want it. Your grandkids don't want it. And that's why we see a return to even more liturgical forms of Christianity because there is more of a, even in the ritual, there's more of an experiential aspect to it than there is a like an appealing to the intellect and reason and rationality. I just want to tell you, there's more in what's given than you realize. And you don't have to get over it. See, there's other ways we do this. You ever find yourself on Netflix and there's everything in the world to watch and you can't find anything to watch? So you switch over to Hulu and there's everything in the world to watch but you can't find anything to watch. Then you go to Disney Plus and there's everything in the world to watch but you can't find anything to watch. 
And then you go to Amazon Prime and there's everything in the world to watch, but you can't find anything to watch. Growing up, we had four channels and there was always something to watch. I learned to be entertained by the most banal and boring things because it was all that there was. And because it was all that there was, there was a pressure placed on it. And the fullness of what was contained in it revealed itself to me, and I experienced it, and I enjoyed it. But now my wife and I literally, like at the end of the night, the kids will go to bed and like, oh, let's spend some time with each other, you know, and we'll just spend an hour flipping through little squares. Like, there's nothing to watch. And I'm like, there's everything to watch. It's an embarrassment of riches. But I can't find anything to watch because there's so much. But this doesn't just apply in the mystical realm. It applies to everything in life. What is in front of you, what you have, what's in your hand, there's more compressed within that thing than you realize. But if you have this idol who lives out there beyond the frontier and the border and I can encounter if I can just get over all this stuff, you'll spend your life searching for something you'll never find. But if you simply stop, let the page be cleared, let the canvas be cleared, and listen and feel, you will see and you will remember why you fell in love with your wife in the first place, why you fell in love with your husband in the first place, why your kids were always enough for you before, and why you didn't have to leave every night and go do this, that, or the other, and family wasn't enough for you. You'll realize that the simple things that lay at hand are the places where God dwells, and you don't have to try to dig beneath the surface to find depth. You just feel the surface and it's there. So may we know the depth of the surface. May we know the beyond in our midst. May we know abundance in what looks like a desolate place.